final entry in the ship's log. What is that? I'll run it through a few filters, see if I can clean it up. Hello friends, welcome back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And today we are joined by a wonderful guest. She is a writer and co-host of an excellent new podcast called The Pod Hand that covers the great Kentaro Miura's Berserk, as well as other topics of dark fantasy, horror, grim dark, all kinds of great things. Uh, Maddie Lewis is here joining us today. Maddie, thanks so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, we are very excited for you to join us uh, during our October Spectaculars here. Um, And you came to us with a suggestion when we asked you to be on the show that I could not say no to because it's one of my favorite science fiction movies of all time. um, And maybe like one of the premier examples of like great sci-fi horror. Uh, It's Paul W.S. Anderson's 1997 film, Event Horizon. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Sam Neill, uh, but I am curious, Maddie. You know why? Why was this film on your short list, and what does Event Horizon mean to you? So I always have a hard time describing Event Horizon to people because I feel like you have to go into like such detail before it makes any sense at all. But the thing I like about it is. Um, I described it as a movie that should have been either like a little bit stupider than it is, like kind of maybe doom adjacent or a little bit smarter and more cerebral than it is to have achieved like its perfect form. But somehow, despite being like a six or seven out of 10, like there's something just really compelling to me about it. And I've not quite put my finger on what that is. So I'm actually kind of hoping maybe this discussion will illuminate what it is that I (laughs) I love, but haven't been able to express about it. I love that. You know, Paul Anderson, we've, we've covered Mortal Kombat on the show before around the time that the the awful reboot came out um, with, I think, our, our mutual friend, uh, Leslie Lee III, um, who, who helped us to see that one in, I think, a, a newer light as well and, and make us appreciate it even more. And so this is his follow-up to the success of that movie and one that's really kind of a blank check for him to do something uh, unique, different, and, and distinctly his own. And I think that you're right. You know, Paul Anderson kind of, to me, is that, like, smart, dumb guy. You know, like, all, in, in this movie especially, I feel like a lot of his reference points, a lot of the things that he is co-opting in service of, like, a really unique vision are pretty obvious reference points, but his passion and commitment to them makes it transcend that and makes it feel... And it was really fascinating and really rewarding when you watch it. There's like a richness to this and, and all of like the work that went into just like the the set designs proper and the the miniature effects and, and just getting the right tonality and like look and feel for this movie makes it really special to me. Yeah, the uh, the production designer is absolutely doing the most in this movie. Just like <laughs> for sure MVP, I think. Yes. 
Yeah, Completely. big time. Um, and that gentleman's name is uh, Joseph Bennett. But I also looked up too. there's a supervising art director here whose name is Malcolm Middleton. And I was looking at some of his other credits, his most notable of which is uh, Quaron's uh, 2006 Children of Men, <gasps> which also has like a like very wow. distinct, like sort of science fiction uh, aesthetic. Yeah, I've actually like... not seen that one, but I, I hear okay. good things about it. Yeah, it's terrific. It's, it's wonderful. It is one of the most, I think, like salient and, and prescient visions of like the near future that I've seen. And especially for a film now that's like, you know, f little over 15 years old. Um, it, mm -hmm. it understands not just like the, the aesthetic qualities of everything, but like the geopolitics and, and sort of like the cultural kind of cachet of, of the now in a way that feels like they were, they were really channeling something that, that, you know, it's, it's very prophetic that movie yeah and i think it, children of men sort of does the same thing that event horizon does in terms of production design which is that the aesthetic trappings of the movie and the the sort of world that we're situated in visually also has like emotive and philosophical implications and i love that about the event horizon production design that there is um it's beautiful to look at it's it's scary to look at, but that also there's psychological tension that it builds. It's antagonizing in many places and you're already sort of feeling antagonized by the tension of the story and the set just ratchets it up that much further. Yeah, I was, um, so it had actually been a hot minute since I'd seen this movie and I rewatched it earlier this week and I'm like, my heart rate's up the whole time, even though like, there's not like a lot of jump scares. So you're not really waiting for those. I feel like the soundtrack doesn't do the thing. A lot of like kind of crappy horror movies of the past 10 years do <laughs> where like everything is just like queued up in the music. You know, you're supposed to be scared. It's very manipulative by the music, but not by like anything that's actually happening. Yep. And even like as fairly extreme as some of the gore is like that alone is not usually enough to get me like kind of freaking out a little bit, but like the whole time I was watching it, I'm like, oh, my chest feels tight. Like this is, this is a very tense movie. Yes, yeah. completely. There's something really uncanny about the way that he employs his gore and violence. It's usually something I'm not particularly squeamish about either, but you know, I, I think specifically of like that, like 15 seconds of footage that are, are kind of parsed mm -hmm. out of like the ship log where it's this sort of like orgiastic cacophony of like sexual deviance and violence and bloodshed and just screaming. And it is incredibly unsettling. <laughs> it is, uh, he's, he's managed to achieve something here that sort of transcends, I think, uh, normal science fiction or horror proper and, and makes something that I, I think is really singular. Yeah, I think because the, the really extreme gore, like the really, really extreme stuff has never really lingered on. It's only in flashes. And that actually like is more effective to me a lot of the time. Cause if I, if I'm like given a chance to look at it really long, I'll be like, Oh, that's, that's fake. That's not real. Or it's maybe too real and you don't want to look at it. But the little flash gives you just enough that you have to like make the next leap in your head. And it's always worse than anything that they could have actually shown you if they would have lingered on it, whatever you you know, unless you just don't have much of an imagination at all, whatever you can think of is probably worse than whatever they could have shown you just practically. Yes, you make a really good point. And I'm realizing actually that a lot of the psychic terror from those moments 
comes from the things that I'm not seeing, but that I'm sort of bringing to my reaction to those, to the images that he is showing us in those really fleeting moments. And I think that, you know, there is a, a, a mania about this movie um, that obviously is persistent in the characters and uh, and in the story for certain reasons. But I, I found myself with the scenes of violence in particular, the fact that they are sort of like chopped up and quick and, and a little bit sort of like, like they come in at really odd times in the film. Um, yeah. That, that to me sort of heightened the experience of how intense those moments felt because I was already feeling like a little bit unhinged. And then when they come in, I'm feeling sort of blindsided by it. And then it's gone quicker than I can even really take it in. And so I'm reacting to it, like lingering into the next scene, which also has a really profound effect on, you know, the sort of surrounding, uh, the surrounding scenes adjacent to the violence. Yeah, it definitely like colors everything else. Once you get just that, that little flash, like the next, you're right, it does linger into the next scene, even if it's something more mundane or less obviously threatening is going on. It that just getting that little flash of like some horrible thing happening to someone and you can't quite tell what it is because you yes. only had like half a second to look at it. Right. Um, it, it lingers. It's really kind of like a, I've not, I don't, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of another movie that has like that same effect where the like quick shot like actually lingers instead of just like fading the second you're not looking at it anymore. Yeah. Or the effect from it. There's not many I can think of that do that, at least that effectively. Yes. And I think we can talk about this, you know, later in the conversation when we get into sort of the logistics around making the movie. But I'm realizing just as we're talking that 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 is uh, potentially a result of some of the production constraints that uh, Paul W.S. Anderson faced that maybe actually served to the benefit of the film. I think there was a lot that didn't serve uh, the film, but I'm realizing as we're talking that that the fact that he may have had his hand forced to, to shorten those scenes or maybe mm-hmm. cut them differently, that that may have added some some extra like psychic terror. For sure. Like, I know a lot of people talk about how bummed out they are about not like the, the kind of the blood orgy uh, ship's log scene being so truncated. And part of me is like, for my curiosity, I kind of would like to see what the full original like cut of that was. But at the same time, part of me is like, I don't know if it would actually improve the movie that much, to be perfectly honest. Mm-hmm. And it's not like me being one of those squeamish is like, uh, you know, you should only ever like imply things. You shouldn't ever actually show them. It's not being <laughs> me being squeamish like that. Because right. um, I definitely think there are some instances where you really should show it and it kind of loses, like you like, kind of loses the power if you like shy away too much. But I don't feel like this is shying away. Mm-hmm. It, it may have, that may have been why it was done, but I don't feel like that's the effect that it has. I think that Anderson's a director too, that, you know, for whatever his faults and limitations, he's somebody who approaches filmmaking as, you know, designed around an audience audience experience first. And I think that he knows, you know, kind of intrinsically what people receive and what people like want to, Hmm. you know, when when people see it, if they want to continue to pursue it and dive in further, even uh, despite apprehension or when it like kind of shuts off for them, you know, he, he mentions in some interviews 
the scene where Kathleen Quinlan's character is in the medical bay and sees her son who's back on earth and the camera very slowly sort of scans to his legs with a ton of like open wounds and boils on them that originally that scene had the boy's legs like bloody and cut up and also covered in live maggots. And (laughs) yeah. And he, he said that he, you know, reflected on watching the initial test screenings of the film with that scene with the maggots and realizing that at that early stage, it was a moment that the audience immediately checked out (laughs) that it was just like one notch too much for them. It was grotesque. And it was also like at the expense of like a child and people were not receptive to the rest of the horror that was to come. And I think if they would have kept it that way, because that's one of the earliest, like, actually grotesque scenes in the movie. I think it's kind of hard to top, you know, cute little boy with his legs full of maggots. Like, you can't top (laughs) that. You can't have that be, like, your first. You can't have that be your first, like, fucked up horror image in a movie. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Right. That's a very good point. Yeah, you have to you have to build to it. You have to uh, crank up the tension slowly. And I think that it achieves that really, really well here. Yes. Yeah, because I mean, either way doing that, I feel like you lose either the more like sensitive people in the audience just check out right there and don't like kind of acclimate themselves. And then the people who are like the real gore hounds are going to be like, well, none of this was as bad as that. Like, why did you show me that first? Yes. <laughs> you can't front load. Yeah. We're realizing. Yeah. It was a good call. Put the maggots in the back half. Yeah. That's that's a He a had rule. to thirst trap us along right. the whole movie. <laughs> exactly. Just like put that, you know, that carrot in front of us and dangle it. <laughs> um, Maddie, do you think that you could possibly uh, summarize the film for us? Just offer like a very brief synopsis? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's one of those movies where I feel like I always over explain it. Yeah. Even though Go it's like it. not actually that complicated. <laughs> but um <laughs> So the the basic premise is uh, we start with kind of like a space search and rescue crew and they're called in for kind of like a top secret mission um, and joining them is uh, Dr. Weir, who is Sam Neill's character, who was one of the scientists who originally like engineered this ship called the Event Horizon. And what it was supposed to do is faster than light travel by kind of like creating like a gateway, like folding space in on itself. And it disappeared uh, some years ago from the start time of the, the film. Um, and it they picked up a distress signal from the ship on the orbit of Neptune or something. So they uh, this search and rescue crew is tasked with going to the ship, seeing if anyone's still there, finding out what happened. And um, what happened is the when the ship went through its gateway, it basically went into like a hell dimension and like the ship is possessed now (laughs) and everyone in the crew prior just like went absolutely like completely nuts, gross violence all over the place. So it's kind of their, it's basically just the story of their mission and how that goes extremely tits up once they get on the event horizon (laughs) because it's haunted now. It's possessed. Yeah. That I, um, was beautiful, by the way. My husband is a really big Warhammer 40k fan. I was gonna so bring this he really up. Likes yes. this, yeah, he really <laughs> likes this movie because he's he says it's the closest we'll probably ever get to a uh, a Warhammer 40k prequel with like a decent budget yeah. and like decent casting, which is pretty accurate from what I know. My yeah. gosh. For the listeners who don't know about this, and, and I do not have a, a major grasp on, on Warhammer, um, 
for the record. There's a but, lot. It's pretty expansive. <laughs> yeah. But I, apparently in, in the lore of Warhammer 40k, like, there is sort of like uh, that that space time, that portal, like hyperspace kind of in, in Star Wars or, or something The warp like or something, I think is what the, it's called. I think it's called the warp, yeah. And in that space, if your ships are not adequately shielded from them, there are apparitions, demons, creatures that can possess and attack your ship and kill your crew if, if you don't... Uh, if you don't try to protect against them. So mm. people there, there is a, a cut of the fan base, I think who see this. Yes. as like a prequel of like <laughs> how, how people discovered the warp and the ramifications of utilizing it without protecting yourself from these, these monsters. Yeah, and I found awesome. oh, my friend showed me this tweet that was from someone who was like integral to the film. It wasn't the director, might have been it might have actually been the production designer mm-hmm. who uh was talking about how he actually like was maybe subconsciously thinking of Warhammer 40k when he he did some of this because oh, wow. he does like it so <laughs> uh i felt felt that was kind of cool and i wish i'd saved the tweet so i could remember exactly who it was but it was someone who was associated with the movie in like a decision making capacity not just like some gaffer or something. I love that. That's way cool. Yeah, I do love that. But yeah, I mean, you you nailed it. I think that's a, a tits up. Yeah, it goes tits, it up. Goes tits uh, up. There's you know Sam Neil like clawing his eyes out and coming back as like a blood drenched uh, you know kind of cenobite looking dude. He's mm-hmm. big time cenobite. And, yeah, in fact, you know, I, I was gonna say you you mentioned that it's it's hard sometimes to find like a, a, a direct proxy or like an, an immediate comparison in the rest of cinema to what Event Horizon is. And I think that a, a lot of people, I think even um, even Phil Eisner, the, the screenwriter at one point sort of pitched it as uh, a haunted house movie, but the house is a ship or like Hellraiser in space, um, which I, I think is is apt. It's adequate. One of the, the reference points that I don't often see called out uh, is Tarkovsky's Solaris. And I don't know if you've seen that film, Maddie. I haven't. I'm un- unfortunately, uh, um, I-, I don't. I've never seen a Tarkovsky movie, and I think okay. I should remedy that. I have a feeling <laughs> I would like them. Yeah, I. You know, I was just telling Carly off mic before we got here when I was like bringing this up that uh, you know if if it's between two like uh, near three hour sort of languidly paced sci-fi epics from Tarkovsky. I'm going to pick Stalker every time instead of Solaris, but Solaris is a very good movie. Um, and, and it sort of functions in a, in a similar way in that one, it's the, the planet and some sort of like strange forces guiding it that are creating hallucinations and manifesting people's innermost thoughts and, and fears and desires onto the ship. But, uh, I, I just found it noteworthy that when I watched this film after having seen Solaris within, you know, the last decade, I was like, oh, this seems like a very clear and obvious reference point, but it doesn't get mentioned a lot. Probably just a lot of people haven't seen it, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah, if, if maybe it's incidental, you know, like maybe maybe Eisner has never seen it. Maybe Anderson's never seen it. Um, but there's also, of course, like very, very obvious cues here, uh, especially in like the early portion of the film to Ridley Scott's Alien. Lots of other great like kind of science fiction horror as well, like some some Baba stuff in here, you know, like uh, Planet of the Vampires, which is also a reference point for Alien. So it's it's just... Uh, one of those kind of fascinating uh, entries in in that lineage, I think. Yeah, definitely. I think thinking about this, like in relation to Alien, well, I think Alien is like, 
the technically better movie, something about Event Horizon like kind of sticks with me more, which I know would be like heresy to some people. <laughs> I think it's because uh, the like outer space aspect of it is played up more in Event Horizon. Mm-hmm. Like you could very easily take the exact same plot for Alien and make it some kind of like a cryptid or something on like, um, I don't know, like a kind of wilderness outpost or something. Sure. You could, you could kind of, kind of transplant the setting of alien and still make it work. I think, um, at least plot wise, but I really don't think you could do that with event horizon, even though it is like a haunted house movie, but it happens to be in space. Cause I think so much of the scares are based on it being in space. Mm -hmm. Like the, um, the airlock sequence is probably the scariest sequence in the entire thing. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, there's a lot of contenders for that, but that was the one that like bothered me the most. And you can't have that sequence as effectively if you don't have that, or even just like the the scene where the um, Cooper, I guess, the their kind of repair technician mm-hmm. guy yeah. gets blasted off the edge of the ship and is like hurtling through space. Like that freaks me out a lot. But yes. that may be like yeah. a personal thing. I remember seeing the trailer for Gravity. And like in theaters um, and I couldn't watch it. Like we were going to see some totally unrelated movie and like this trailer comes on and the second I realize what's going on, I'm like closing my eyes, like covering my ears, like about to hyperventilate because I just can't stand that. It scares me so bad. Maddie, I'm so glad you brought this up because I was thinking that very thing when we were watching this, this movie, there is this understanding that we all have as terrestrial humans that space is extremely dangerous right like and it has often yeah it's a place you're not supposed to go it's a place you're not supposed to go it's been described by many astronauts and people that have been in space and spent a long time in space as a place that is constantly trying to kill you um and so the the mapping of that horror with the horror of hellish forces and the terrorizing that happens from that side of the, of the house, like the mapping of those things together just made the terror that I felt all that much more intense. And on top of that, I also really love the kind of, like visceral and physical similarities between the things that are happening to them in this hell dimension and the things that are happening to them because space, right? <laughs> like there, there are a lot of one-to-ones and I'm thinking specifically, and I'm so glad you mentioned it, of the airlock scene when we actually see his eyes bleeding and start to pop out of his skull. It's not a coincidence later that that becomes a really important visual like cue of horror in you know the sort of descent into madness yeah this movie is not shy about the the eye gore no No. absolutely not (laughs) and and it's just i you make a beautiful point that it does make the horror of the film and the fact that it needs to take place in space like it's that it's that much more resonant um and it does leave a, a lasting impact yeah, because I'm thinking, like, if you tried to transpose this story into, like, maybe, I guess the closest terrestrial thing you could do would be, like, 
a haunted, maybe like an a mil- abandoned military outpost or mm-hmm. research outpost yep. or something. But even with that kind of setting, just, you know, there's always the hope that, well, well, if you get far enough away, like you can be safe. But here it's mm-hmm. like, you get far enough away and you're in the sucking void of space. You are not safe. There is no yes. safe. Yeah. Completely. I think this movie also manages to transcend uh, some of those other reference points that we've already mentioned because of the sort of like formlessness of the evil of the antagonist, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's operating in a very similar vein as an alien in which, you know, Ridley Scott in that film really holds off on showing you the alien in its full form until the, the final few minutes of the movie. But in this film, you don't see the evil mm-hmm. because it is sort of, it is the ship, right? Like the ship is embodied mm-hmm. by this sort of malicious, hellish force that almost makes it sort of like sentient. It's sort of acting as an environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's all those little scenes. There's a couple of them in the movie where they do like a bio scan and they're like, oh, the entire thing is like, oh, my readings are wonky. And I'm like, man, if that was me and I re- did, you know, a bio scan of a ship and the entire thing lit up, I'd be like, oh, hell no. <laughs> we are not even going yeah. in there. Completely. And I think it also it also really makes those scenes where there are where they are seeing apparitions or hearing something or just have like an unsettling feeling um, because Aaron, as you mentioned, you there isn't really a form um, or even like a way to articulate what's antagonizing them until we get to sort of the end of the film. Mm-hmm. It it makes the fear, at least for me, that much more intense because I was like, I don't know how to feel about this. Like, I don't, I don't know where this is coming from. I don't know if this is a hallucination or if like she is actually seeing her son. It's just, it's just that much more antagonizing. Yeah. And I think the destabilizing where you don't really, like, you kind of know it's a hallucination, but it also seems real. And, um, the characters are reacting as if it's not. They're acting like it's real. It kind of reminds me of, and I don't, I don't think this is a great movie, but I think it's an effective movie if this kind of thing like gets to you. Is um, Oculus, mm-hmm. the Mike Flanagan yep. like like Evil Mirror movie? It kind yeah. of has a similar vibe to that, where you you never actually see like there's no entity that you ever see that is like the evil of the ship or the evil of the mirror. It's not embodied in that way. It kind of just warps to whoever's around it and experiencing it. And like that idea always really unsettles me. And like the idea of like, you can be in a situation and you can't trust your own perceptions at all. And that's, that always gets me in horror. And I think that's another reason why I think this movie is particularly scary to me because I'm really afraid of space. I really don't like when I, I feel like I can't trust or the characters can't trust their own perceptions of things. I think that's usually really scary. The hell dimension thing in general is just, it's messed up. That's pretty scary. It's hard to make that not scary. Yes. This movie is frightening. And like its visions of hell are very rooted in kind of like Gothic imagery and like sort of like Christian influenced artwork, you know, like, like um, Hieronymus, uh, gosh, Mm -hmm. yeah. and, And Peter Bruegel and, uh, you know, like he's taking a lot of like Gothic architecture influences here as well for like the designs of the ship and and its visions of hell feel very familiar, but they're coming from, I think, a more sort of abstracted and secularized place within the, the narrative of the film. It's, it's, it's a dimension that exudes these kind of hellish forms. It's not hell right. proper. It's not literal hell. They just describe it as being like hell, mm-hmm. which 
I mean, I guess if you wanted to read it as literal hell, you could. There's not really anything stopping you from that interpretation. There's nothing that really challenges it. But there's also nothing that's, you know, says, no, it's got to be like, it must be literal hell, which I think is interesting. I'm glad you brought up like the the gothic touches of, of because so much of the design of the ship, especially the room where the gravity drive is, yes. mm-hmm. is like extremely, extremely like gothic that the spikes all of that is very like this is a cathedral but evil and in space (laughs) yep um (laughs) and it rocks and also kind of like the design of the gravity drive itself where you have this like orbiting kind of thing and it has the the rings around it it Mm -hmm. kind of reminds me of if you've ever seen those like engravings of like biblically accurate angels where you have like Mm -hmm. the eye with the kind of wheels around it oh my it kind of reminds me of that and I don't know how much that was intentional and how much that's just like me like conflating those images because I know of both of them. Yes. But that's kind of what it reminds me of. Oh, Maddie, but that's like, spot on. Evil. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right. And and you're you're bringing up a point that I think is important in us talking about, you know, the production design and sort of the aesthetic the emotive work, the philosophical work that the aesthetics of the movie are doing, which is that there are references to things obliquely or otherwise that we just have been socialized in, you know, throughout hundreds of years of, of Christianity and, uh, and it's, you know, trappings being uh, a dominant part of organized society. Um, that there are things that we automatically sort of associate and can name, even if we don't know specifically what it's referring to. I, I felt this way also about the kind of mutilation that is shown in the movie. Mm-hmm. It had me thinking about Dante's Inferno, which is, you know, he mm-hmm. is I can see that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like working with a lot of con- canonical ideas around hell, but he really brings them to full fruition and, and fleshes them out. Mm-hmm. Um, no pun intended in a way that like, you know, we hadn't seen um, as a modern society right. until that point. And I think a lot too of the the particular kinds of gore, a lot of them remind me a lot of like the kind of gore you would encounter if you were reading stories about like Christian martyrs or yes. uh, the really like uh, particularly the very sensationalized ones that may or may not actually be historically accurate. Um, uh, same thing with like, I don't know, kind of the collective idea that you have of like Spanish Inquisition tortures, even though yes. the history of the Spanish Inquisition and the like the actual history and the um, kind of like the average person's mental image or like knowledge of what it is are, are pretty far removed from one another. Mm-hmm. It feels like that's kind of what it's drawing on to. It's like Dante, uh, martyrdom, inquisitorial torture, like all of it getting kind of mushed together. Yes. And it's brilliantly done because as we're, as we're sa- all sort of saying here, it is drawing on those things in a way that is explicit enough to engender those ideas and those references, but isn't so explicit that we are necessarily like tying what's happening ideologically or sort of thematically to those things. It's, it's that sort of just like, it induces that feeling of dread and, and pain and then situates itself in, 
you know, a wholly new constructed environment within space, which exists in its own sort of hellish incarnation. And I think is, you know, as we're saying, allows us to go even further with with the horror and the worldview of the film. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't say worldview, the uh, world building, world building. Yes. Yeah. This conversation is leading me to, to realize that I think that one of the things that makes the film so effective is it's sort of grab bag of like of horror, right? Like it, it is not one thing here, even though we can describe it, I think, pretty succinctly as sci-fi horror. Mm-hmm. The fear induced comes from the supernatural. It comes mm-hmm. from the scientific and interdimensional. It comes from the fact that like space will kill you. You know, all of these things are playing off of one another here to create something that is just a constant state and environment of terror. Right. You've got kind of like, so you have the, the, the sci-fi premise, you have the the actual manifestations being bordering between supernatural and psychological. It's kind of hard to, to say one way or the other. Mm-hmm. You have just the outright gore. Um, you have the, the very gothic aesthetic and it, it does, but it seems cohesive. It doesn't seem like, like it is a grab bag, but it doesn't feel like you know, a grab bag. It feels very cohesive. And you have the environmental horror too, like yes. with this with space. That's just an extreme environment. And um I actually love environmental horror, like that kind of uh if it's done well at least. Again thinking something like the first season of the terror, like the scariest shit I ever seen in my life on a TV <laughs> show. Um and it's not really because of the supernatural stuff necessarily. It's just the environment is so unforgiving mm-hmm. and outer space kind of fills that same niche but even more so it's like more intense than even just like an arctic ice over wasteland it's 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 really effective for that so you definitely do have a blend of so many different kinds of horror in here um you know the the more i think about this movie the more i'm like why did people hate this when it came out because it was really kind (laughs) of a flop yeah Um, it it did not do well the other thing i was looking at my husband and I were watching it together. And one thing we were talking about, like, cause I didn't know how much it cost or how much it made. And one thing we were talking about is, I mean, I didn't check what this would be with inflation, but it only costs like 60 million, which I know only 60 million, but in movie terms, that's especially these days, like not all that much for a science fiction movie, Yeah, but it looks so good just because I think the, the production choices were so intentional. Um, they didn't try and make everything as like shiny and chrome and clean. I like that they left it be like gross and gritty. And yeah. I think that works too when you're kind of doing a little bit more DIY production. You don't have to make everything look perfect. And in fact, this would not be nearly as scary if everything looked perfect. Absolutely not. It, it kind of takes, you know, a little bit of like the, the pristineness and precision of something like Alien and like kind of dirties it up a little bit. You know, like it's not sparse. It's actually very sort of uh, kind of Byzantine in, in the way that it, it yeah. relays everything. Like oh, there's lots of like electronics and wiring and, you know, there's buttons and lights and things all over the place. And even in some of the more, uh, you know, kind of like clean sets, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Like there's like that kind of like sort of centrifuge on the mm-hmm. ship that is just like a tank of like green water or like ectoplasm or something yeah. in the middle of it it doesn't something. have a purpose it doesn't try to explain it it just looks very it just looks gorgeous it's, it's very unsettling and right also i don't know if this is me just like not being great with like visual spatial stuff but i can't map onto like when i'm seeing an interior shot i can't map map onto the ship really where on the exterior that is barring like yes. a couple um a couple specific places 
even though like you look at the design, it's basically a cross. It's a cross shaped ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you look at the, that out, out like that design, and I'm like, this shouldn't be confusing. I should pretty much have an idea of how this is laid out. And I'm like, other than that big hallway, like the big long corridor, I got nothing. No clue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you you wonder how much of that is intentional. I I don't know if that like like I said I I'm not great with visual spatial like mapping like. 3D onto 2D or like mm-hmm. I, I couldn't draw you a diagram of my own house that I live in. <laughs> um, but I, so I don't know how much of that was like, you know, like the shining where, you know, there are too many left turns than should be f- physically possible or how mm-hmm. much of that is just like me, but it, it's, it's disorienting. I can't tell where anything really is on the ship. I want to give credit where I think it's due. You think that's intentional? And of just knowing how committed this crew was to the production design and to really investing in the feelings and ideas that they were trying to evoke, not just with the story, but with the, the physical spaces of the film. I, I would like to think that that's intentional. I'm going to, I'm going to fall somewhere maybe in the middle and say that I think that the, the production design Anderson at all probably had a, a general conceit of where things were in the ship and probably mapped it out onto like an actual sort of like 3D kind of rendering of this in a cross section. But I think that by and large, the disorienting elements of it and like the lack of interstitial sort of like spatial reasoning that we get in the movie is a byproduct of the post-production schedule and the fact that a lot of this movie had to be cut. But I think it works in it. I, I, it works in its favor tremendously because yes. it feels like you mentioned, Maddie, like The Shining or like a Haunted House movie where it's like there are too many corridors here for what there should be or there's a room that shouldn't exist mm-hmm. or like this thing exists in a space that doesn't really make sense within like the, the topical geography of the ship. I, I Right. And I think especially because like you, that... sorry, especially because like you mentioned, there's not a lot of shots of like characters going from point A to point B. Um, it's pretty much you're in a room, the scene is in the room. You're in another room, the scene is in that room. There's yes. not a whole lot of where they're like going through the corridors. So you, it's really hard to orient yourself on the ship other than knowing that the front end is kind of the like lifeboat bridge section and the back end is where more of the technical stuff is. And then there's the long corridor connecting the two of them but otherwise it's it's like I don't know where I am (laughs) totally I felt the exact same way and I think like that's reflective of the experience in space right we know that to be true that like there is no up or down there is no like backwards forwards it is completely and utterly disorienting in every way and and not bound by the physical like prescriptions of the things that we're constrained to here on earth and on top of that, the the psychological disorientation of the characters is rightly or wrongly, I think, reflected in the spatial disorientation mm-hmm. of, you know, how they interact with one another, even when they were radioing to each other from different rooms, and they were showing us both rooms, I was still like, I don't... How far are these two from one another? Are like, they, where? Yeah. You know, and I think the most, the, the scene that I found the most disorienting in terms of spatial, kind of like knowing where, like knowing where you are is the scene where, so they're in the, the room with the gravity drive and 
Sam Neill's character, the the engineer, and Dr. Weir has to go kind of into this to fix something inside in this green. It looks like it's almost like the entire, like, like a tunnel. Like he has to crouch. Yeah. Yes. And it almost looks like it's the entire thing's almost like circuit boards is what yes. it looks like. And that whole scene, I'm like, I have no idea how this fits inside the rest of the ship. I, I feel like I'm totally lost and disoriented. I'm like, I look at that too. Cause, uh, not only am I very afraid of big open outer space, I'm also really, really claustrophobic. <laughs> so that scene freaked me the hell out because like, this is too small. Like he's a normal sized mm-hmm. man. This is a small corridor. I'm not sure how many turns he's making. Like the lights are going on and off. I do not like this. This is extremely tense. That was actually worse for me than a lot of the like outright, like scary, like gory moments. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it was It was not a fun time, that particular sequence. So effective. And it looks like nothing else in the rest of the movie, right? There's not a single No, it's thing. so much whiter and brighter. Yes. Um, and and crisp. And it. you're right. I totally had the same thought about circuit boards. It's so, so good and so effective. We haven't talked yet about one of my favorite set pieces in the film, which is the, uh, like the magnetic field around the hallway and bridge mm-hmm. leading into the core of the ship. What uh, what Justin oh, calls the yeah, meat grinder. A meat grinder? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so like when I first, when I, every time I've watched this movie up until this time, I've assumed that a large portion of that is largely animated, that it's like CGI rendered. And this time around, I actually like stopped and looked at it more closely and realized that it is a full on practical set. That it is like, you know, these like sharp, jagged edges within like uh, a gimbal sort of like rounded cylinder around a bridge that they Mm -hmm. are physically spinning that has these like puncture holes where light comes in. And they're just flooding light into those pieces and creating this interesting sort of like light effect on the spinning architecture. And it is... Mm-hmm. It's awesome. It just looks so good. It's, it's so really terrifying. Cool. I can't imagine how disorienting that would have been to shoot on because I I don't know if I thought one way or the other whether that was practical or whether it was, uh, you know, c- computer generated. But knowing it's practical, I'm, man, I can't imagine how disorienting it would be to shoot on that because it's disorienting just to watch a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, it's really creepy that the, the way he describes it as a meat grinder, like, on one hand, I feel like that's like maybe a little bit on the nose, but on the other hand, it's it's absolutely correct. Yeah, especially when we see the mutilation of the bodies later, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't mm-hmm. help but think about that reference. And you're also making me remember a, a tidbit that I read from a really great article that Aaron alerted me to um, in The Ringer about this movie. But there's an anecdote in this piece that references that the actors themselves really did not enjoy coming to work. Like there was a, there was a, you know, a sort of like a jokey refrain, but that was also a very real feeling where they would say like, Paul, like we love working with you. We just hate being here Um, because they were all feeling like really unsettled by the sets and Paul is relaying in this interview. That's when I knew I was doing it right. Like if I, if Mm -hmm. I could get the actors to not feel good on set because of the set and for no other reason, right? Not because there were 
you know, interpersonal problems or anything like that. But, but if I could evoke that feeling of dread um, with the set, then I knew that I was doing my job. Right. And, you know, I feel like this is one of the movies where like, there's sometimes you watch a horror movie and like, no one's really like, you don't really believe that the characters are scared because the actors just aren't really selling it. But there's a couple scenes in here where like, oh yeah, I buy that this person is absolutely like terrified, probably because the <laughs> actors were feeling uneasy. Like almost any scene with Peters, I think the actress who played her is mm-hmm. very, very good. She's a small role, but every time like everything she does, the, the fear and the like desperation um, is very convincing on her end. The airlock scene, I still think is probably the other scariest scene in the movie mm-hmm. um, with Justin and then with Peters as well, the two of them. That's really tense and honestly like the cast is really they're putting in the work on this movie like yes. sam neill and Lawrence fishburne are definitely like <laughs> hamming it up but i think yep. totally. and the guy who plays cooper he's kind of hamming it up a little bit oh too my, yeah. but i think a lot of the kind of the more a lot of the more secondary characters like they're playing it pretty straight yes like, and it's convincing yeah they do really great work in this film all around one of the things that i think this movie gets really right that i see done wrong a lot in science fiction in general but sci-fi horror too is that they they give them just enough in their sort of like archetypal characters and in their interpersonal relationships to feel convincing you know it's often talked about in terms of like alien uh which we'll you know reference again that one of the best parts about it is that none of these people are particularly beholden to the other one because at the end of the day they are co-workers right you know trying to survive Mm -hmm. something and I get the same kind of vibe from these people. Like there are obviously certain dynamics that range that ring truer than others, you know, like there is some sexual tension between like Stark and, and Cooper, you know, he like makes passes at her very often. And then there's also like the kind of like uh, maternal sort of relationship mm-hmm, between with Peters and Justin, right between Kathleen Quinlan and uh, Jack Noseworthy between Peters and Justin that that plays out in a really interesting way. in that like baby bear, mama bear scene in the airlock. But I, I do mm-hmm. like that ultimately these people are are effectively coworkers, right? They are they are a unit, but they are also creating interpersonal dynamics very much based on their own self-interest and, and uh, hope of preservation at the end of the day. Or or in Sam Neill's case, on the hope of preserving this thing that he created for some somewhat selfish reasons that turn into something more madness uh, adjacent. Right. So actually kind of want to talk about that because I, I was talking about this movie with one of my friends and uh, and he said that his favorite interpretation of Sam Neill's character was that the reason he was so adamant about like staying on the ship and turning on that warp is he wants to go to hell to see his wife again. Mm. And I never thought about it that way before. And there's yeah. a part of me that's like, this is so perfect because um, that kind of like mad scientist, like, driven to just like extreme behavior um out of bereavement or or for a loved one is like such a classic gothic trope and i i think that that interpretation actually works really well of his character with mm-hmm. the whole gothic trappings of the of the production um and part of it's too it's just like I don't know. That's like, I'm a sucker for that type of character. Like the, the extreme like wife guy to the point of insanity <laughs> is, is a, that is a favorite of mine. I was just going to say, he's a great it. wife guy. Yeah. He's an incredible <laughs> wife guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. I really liked that. I'd never thought about it that way before. I'm like, 
oh, that actually, because, and she keeps coming to him on the ship. Like he, mm-hmm. he keeps seeing um, hallucinations of her. So I, I kind of like, I like that a lot, especially because towards more towards the beginning, he, he isn't as like, he wants to get to the bottom of things, but it seems more a matter of, well, I created this ship. I want to know what happened to it. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem like he has quite the personal stake in it until she kind of starts showing up and he keeps having visions of her. And I, I don't know why that had never like sparked in my brain watching this movie before. But, but once my friend mentioned that I was, I was like, Oh, this is, this is Canon to me. This is, this is the real. Yes. Text. Yeah. This Completely. is the correct interpretation of Sam Neill's character. Now. I absolutely think it is Maddie. This was the second time I had seen this movie and I couldn't remember a lot of it from the first time that I watched it. I think because I was only like half watching it and like, making dinner or something which is not the way to watch mm-hmm. this movie for the <laughs> no record. it's definitely a, like you sit down and your eyes are on the screen the whole yeah. time kind yes of movie. don't watch Maybe. it while eating dinner either that's no. also probably not a great time to watch it but i or after but, having just eaten or after having just eaten whoops like just adjacent to any sort of <laughs> carnage in, in any kind of way um but the one thing that i did recall was the feeling i had about his connection to his wife Um, And I think that your friend's reading is spot on, uh, in particular, if we look at certain key pieces, one of which is that the film opens with a a pretty dark uh, hallucination or dream um, Mm -hmm. of of Sam Neill's character's wife, like in a cockpit of some sort or something. Um, and, And it mirrors the hallucinations that he has later in the film. It visually looks and feels very similar. Um, and that's that's mm-hmm. one of the very first things we open the film with. Um, and I think that that like stuck with me throughout the entire um, throughout the entire story. And you kind of can't right. unhook yourself from his his visions of her. Um, and you know mm-hmm. they're there because he's so purposefully not talking about them that it's insistent upon their presence. Like you as a viewer cannot cannot not think about them mm-hmm. because he's omitting them from his experience it, with the rest of these people. Right. One of the other things that I was thinking about too as we're bringing it up is the sort of classic, I, again, to bring up, you know, sort of maybe one of like the, the religious or more like kind of, you know, Catholic adjacent ideas of the film, mm-hmm. she's a suicide. And we know mm-hmm. how, you know, like largely the Catholic religion views suicide, right? As, as uh, you know, people condemned to hell by, by choosing to end their own life. So there's maybe a little bit of that going on here too. And I also wonder, you know, you, now that you bring up the vision at the beginning, if that's just a bad dream or if we're meant to interpret it as a vision that the event horizon, now that it's returned, is sending like it's to its creator. On him. Mm-hmm. Yeah knowing that it can exploit his desire to reunite with his wife and also knowing his connection to the ship. If the ship is sentient, perhaps it's calling its creator, Yes, you know, in another sort Mm -hmm. of metaphorical kind of God and Christ allegory sort of thing as well. Yes. And I don't want to beat this to a pulp, but if we're thinking about Dante specifically, the whole reason he descends into hell is for Beatrice, right? right? Mm -hmm. Like that is Mm -hmm. what drives his entire pursuit. So I think we're on to something here, guys. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that's a, it's a really good interpretation and it gives a little bit more um, 
a little more pathos to the character, I think. Yeah. But I know some people are like, oh, I hate that cliche, like, like guy driven mad by the loss of his loved one. And I'm like, oh, I love it. I think it's romantic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so all More about capital it. R romantic than like little case R romantic. Yes. But, yeah. Um, a little bit of both. Right. Well, and keep in mind, too, that that kind of story certainly appeals to someone like Paul W.S. Anderson, who we know as one of, like, Hollywood's biggest wife guys. <laughs> biggest like, wife guys. He yeah. loves his wife. Like, he thinks his wife is super hot. Like, I love it! Yeah, like, his, his entire career. Like, he's like, not wrong. No, he's no. not. She's such a babe. And, like, he, he gets it. Like, I, I find it incredibly endearing uh, that his career has largely just been shaped by his desire to, like, put his hot wife in his movies and make her look like a badass. Like oh, that's I'm awesome. To me. I'm obsessed with how much he's obsessed with his wife. Yeah. It's, it's so hot. I yeah. Love he him. and, um, he and Rob Zombie are also very in that same kind of, yeah. kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of group there. Cause oh, Rob Zombie seems so to also like, I'm going to make a movie. And I'm going to find a part for Sherry moon. I'm going to make <laughs> one just for her. Yep. Which again, I can't blame him. If Sherry Moon Zombie was my wife, I'd put her in my movies too. Yes, completely. Yeah, we need more like more movie wife guys. I guess, you know, at this point, you know, the other Paul Anderson is kind of a movie wife guy too. He finds a way to get Maya into his movies, but um, not quite to the same extent as like making his wife the centerpiece (laughs) and like focal point of his entire career. In like latex. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just like in like... (laughs) in combat gear and latex and like wielding guns and knives. And yeah, like he loves it. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It is (laughs) fantastic. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Lawrence Fishburne in this movie. Yes. He's so good in this movie. He's He's fantastic. And it's like, it's like right before, you know, Morpheus comes along and he's channeling a lot of that same kind of like intensity here, but he's also just like brazenly funny. I think we <laughs> Oh yeah, he's like I know that like I think Cooper is like supposed to be the comic relief character, yeah. but Lawrence Fishburne has like some of the best line delivery of like anything I've ever seen in this movie. There are a couple yes. of specific lines like I think we both keyed into the part immediately following that like horrifying footage from the ship log where he says we're leaving and the way that he delivers it is just so like matter of fact and curt and kind of silly. We're leaving. No, we can't leave. Our orders are specific. Rescue the crew, salvage what's left of the ship. The crew is dead, Doctor. Your ship killed them. We came here to do a job. We're aboarding, Doctor! it's sublime it's transcendent it's really good like i think like if you were to ask me what is my favorite two-word utterance in any film and how it's delivered it might actually be that it's so perfect (laughs) hell yes there's one more as well you know where he's kind of in the midst of an argument with uh sam neill with dr weir at the point that he's trying to kind of make make an appeal to stay on the ship or bring the ship back or not destroy it and he says a, a, just a series of very direct lines and, and ends it with, fuck this ship. What about my ship? You can't just leave her? I have no intention of leaving her, Doctor. I will take the Lewis and Clark to a safe distance and then I will launch attack missiles at the event horizon until I'm satisfied she's vaporized. Fuck this ship. Oh, you're done. He says. <laughs> and it's just like pitch perfect, the tonality of it. Like it, he is doing so much great work here. And I feel like 
he is giving it the right level of import and giving the character like mm-hmm. what it needs to feel sincere and earnest. But you can tell he's having a ton of fun. Yeah, he's he's so much fun in this movie. Like Sam Neill definitely like hams it up a lot too. But the uh, just the, how matter of fact and like blunt Lawrence Fishburne's character is, yes. and honestly, like the way the character is portrayed is like. He's very like courageous and admirable, but he also is not about to take any stupid bullshit, which is like, if I was on a search and rescue space crew, I would want Lawrence Fishburne to be the the boss of my operation. <laughs> yes. Like it's not his fault that this entire ship is like turbo fucked. Like in any like sort of normal search and rescue operation, I'm sure that guy is like perfect. He's exactly the guy you want giving you the orders. Completely. And when we were watching this, this last time I stopped and I was like, this is like that same sort of commanding, fearless, but also intensely practical version of Morpheus that we know. And, mm-hmm. um, and so, yes, I like definitely made that association between those two characters. And I was like, oh, this absolutely got him the part, especially when he's like hopping around on the ship and he's like, you know, walking and like giving orders. It felt very like, Matrix Morpheus. But the thing that I think Lawrence Fishburne also does really well in this film that I think is distinct um, from Morpheus is that the groundedness that he brings to the story and his character doesn't come from uh, Gravitas, which is what I would argue it comes from with Morpheus, right? It comes from... Yeah, I, it's It's been honestly, like, I've seen the 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 matrix like once in high school and i think i fell asleep so uh, i'll i'll agree to anything you say about the matrix bless you maddie yes that i i i think that's fine we forget sometimes that other people aren't like you know as sincere and like huge matrix fans as we are i feel like it's happened on the show before we find a way to like we find a way to reference the matrix and and paul schrader's first reformed on the show like once an episode and other people are like, oh, okay, I haven't seen it. I, was I actually, don't remember it. I was actually going to bring up First Reformed because of the barbed wire. I yes. don't know if you've seen, have you seen First Reformed, Maddie? I haven't. And that one okay. I, I probably should because it's, uh, that one is like definitely categorically something I would be interested in. The Matrix, yeah. I should probably give it another go just, you know, to actually see the whole thing. But it's, it's not, not necessarily something I'm, it, it's not for me as much as something yeah. like, first reformed is and sci-fi in general is not really for me which Mm -hmm. is why it's even like event horizon is even more special to me because it's like one of like just a handful of like sci-fi works that i really really like yes i would say prioritize first reformed completely and and absolutely there is a just to fully lean into the first reformed reference that i was gonna make but decided not to because i was like we can't talk about it on this episode again but here we are um (laughs) is there there is uh canonically in in i think catholicism one of the ways you self-flagellate is with barbed wire that you sort of wrap around yourself and it comes up in first reformed i won't say how but it does yeah um and i couldn't help but think about that in the scenes where we have flashes of the torture that the crew is experiencing And you can't see a whole lot, but what you can very clearly see is barbed wire being dragged across someone's body. 
So there you have it. There you have it. There's there's the first Reformed <laughs> reference. All I was going to say about Lawrence Fishburne is that while he is doing a lot of hamming and he is delivering some of the funniest lines in the movie, he's also grounding the story in a way that like I really needed because mm-hmm. there's a lot of like science that doesn't really track where you're like, okay, like they're being sucked into space, but we just saw the airlock thing where like they would have exploded in a second. So like, why isn't that happening? There's a lot of that, right. That's more there for spectacle. And if you lean mm-hmm. too, too far into that, which I am wont to do, um, you know, you can see so this is where it rocks for me. Cause I don't know much science and also don't give a shit about most of it. Unless <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like all, it's on the movie. earth. Unless it is like on the earth dealing with like plants, animals, or human bodies, I do not care about science particularly. (laughs) So you could tell me anything about what outer space does. And I'm like, yeah, I'd probably believe that. That sounds about right. That's messed up. I need to channel more of Maddie when we're watching these movies. We've learned this though, because like in the first, I think like 90 seconds of this movie, you're like, you wouldn't hear lightning strikes in space. (laughs) And I was like... This isn't that kind of movie, you know, like we're not, this is not trying to be 2001. Uh, like. See, but the trade-off here is I can't watch like a 19th century period piece without being like that style of sleeve didn't come into fashion for another decade. Oh, that man. corset's laced wrong. Those are not the right kind of shoes for this occasion. <laughs> that's my girl. Yeah. That's, that's my girl. That's you too for sure. I am terrible about like dating things in period pieces. Like I have no sense of it. I'm like, to me, it's like, all of this happened at the same time. Like, I don't know if that's eighties or seventies. I don't know if that's like 1880s or like whatever it is. Like I am so bad about that. Uh, Yeah. I come to accept that the makeup and hairstyles will probably be like, they won't be right. No one's going to try. Like Regency hair looks stupid to modern eyes. So it was like shocked that Emma, the, the Anya Taylor joy, Emma actually like Mm -hmm. made an effort. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually a very good one, but yeah, the clothes I'm like, Mm. we have like fashion plates, like so many of them from this time period. We have photographs of what people actually wore. Like try yes. a little bit, please. Yes. I'm right there. <laughs> it's with not you. like something in like the 13th century where you have like the kind of crappy, like 13th century drawings that aren't really right. very it's detailed. Like an Albrecht and you certainly Durer. don't have like, <laughs> you don't have photos or actual like existing complete garments from. Yeah. That's, that's just a, a pet peeve of mine. But I'm not like that with science. As long as it, you know, isn't like really, really blatantly stupid, I don't care. But, you know, you bring up a good point because I think there is a certain amount of like abandon that you have to have to watch this movie and really oh, enjoy for sure. it. And it's nice to be reminded that you can watch a movie that way sometimes, right? Like, yeah it's really easy for me to take things super seriously, just like in life in general. Um, And so I appreciated that this movie was like, no, no, like stop vibes. Just vibes. 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 Yeah. (laughs) All vibes. (laughs) Circling back for just one second to Lawrence Fishburne. He also has one of my favorite uh, sort of like monologue soliloquies in the film as well. And when this movie slows down, you know, it, it does not, lose pace and it does not uh, become un- unsettling. You know, the, I, I'm thinking specifically mm-hmm. of uh, his recollection of the man who he let die on in one of his previous commands. And he's speaking with Jason Isaac's character and telling him the story of what happened and kind of has that sort of, you know, very, very graphic sort of like vision that he, he relays to us of seeing fire 
in zero gravity and the way that it moves in waves and it like mm. acts like liquid and you get a sense of just how like brutal and horrifying it is yet at the same time as it's like also beautiful and like you know this this sort mm -hmm. of reverent kind of thing and i love that scene i love that back and forth it adds like again just a little like inkling and, and peppering of pathos to to Lawrence fishburne's character and it makes right. those scenes where you see the visions of of that character that much more unsettling when the o2 tanks ruptured four of us made it to the lifeboat but Cork was still on board the goliath when the fire broke out you ever seen fire in zero gravity it's beautiful. It's like liquid. It slides all over everything. Comes up in waves. And I think too, even just the the that like that fire in in zero gravity monologue about how you like you can tell just by how he's emoting the things that were happening in that situation that it was a terrifying experience for him. But he does directly say it's beautiful, and I feel like that's kind of a good has a that's almost like a good encapsulation of this movie like it mm -hmm. is terrifying it's unsettling it's it's gross and awful but it also has like such a and like artistic vision to it that it is beautiful like like the room with the uh, the corridor with the kind of rotating like blade looking things the meat grinder and the the chamber where the uh the gravity drive is like yeah, that's spiky and and gothic, but like gothic cathedrals are beautiful too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like, they're not just scary; they're also beautiful. Yeah, you nailed it. I think that that is exactly it. This movie is unsettling and disquieting, but it's also gorgeous. I do want to talk a little bit about some of the production woes yes. of this and the legacy of the movie, because as we've already alluded to, uh, you know, this this movie did not do well financially. But uh, I, I think it made back less than half of its production budget. I think I think that the final numbers were. Oh, I have it pulled up right now. Uh, uh, looks like, looks it like cost sixty million. Yeah, it cost sixty million and didn't even quite make thirty million in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Looks like forty-two looks like million is the final for like altogether total between yeah. international and domestic. Yeah. So it, you know, it was you know got kind of scathing reviews. It was not met with you know a lot of love at the box office either. Uh, but it, it made monumental strides on home video, so much so that by the time mm -hmm. that this movie finally came out on in its initial DVD run, Paramount was asking Anderson to offer them some sort of director's cut and to implement and cut back in some of like the footage that that had been taken out for like the 90 minute version that we get um, to, to make it more reminiscent of like the initial, uh, you know, two plus hour cut that that Anderson had been kind of shopping and, and showing to test audiences. This is somehow true, and I think this is fa fascinating that, you know, they didn't think about this in like a pre-DVD era. There was just nowhere for that footage to go. So they didn't really keep it or preserve it in, in any sort of thoughtful way. And most of that footage was on reels that found their way into a salt mine in Transylvania. What? <laughs> yes. I heard that. I, I, you know, you know, I'd heard the the Lost Reels salt mine in Transylvania, and I, I'd, I'd heard that story, and like couldn't remember what movie it was. I didn't know that that was Event Horizon. Yeah, it's it's up there with like all of the like ET Atari games buried in like the desert. And, like, oh Death my Valley, god! But, like, but yeah, so you know, none of this stuff was preserved well. It wasn't kept in any like good way, so they couldn't do anything with it. Uh, in fact, I, I think that. 
from Anderson's own admission, the only copy that they have of some of this deleted footage comes from like a VHS tape that one of the producers, Lloyd Levin, has in his house. And they're in no hurry to like find it or, or unearth it because it is just a transfer onto onto tape. Like there's not really a, a great way or wasn't at the time a way to like restore that footage to make it feel like it fit mm-hmm. into the film. Um, despite that, we we hear clamorings like to this day, you know, some several years later, 20 some odd years later for a director's cut of this movie for the Anderson cut. Um, yeah. But I, I also think that, you know, like what we've kind of articulated sort of defies the need for that. It seems like yeah. part of the magic of it is that it it is in the iteration it's in and that it gives us just enough that it plays with the imagination. Yeah, it's definitely like if they were to somehow release an Anderson cut, that's something where I would like to see it for my own curiosity. But I also don't know that it would necessarily be better. Like, I feel like some of it might be just happy accidents. These things that screwed up in the production ended up working really well. I don't know. I I know the gore hounds really want the extended blood orgy scene, but I could take it or leave it. I'd like to see it for my own curiosity, but I don't think it would really enhance my um, appreciation or enjoyment of the film all that much. This conversation has made me realize that there are a lot of things about the production constraints, the post-production constraints in particular, Mm -hmm. that have actually worked to the film's benefit in the ways that we've discussed. So I'm with you on that, Maddie. I don't, I don't know actually that I'm feeling as bereft about the, the things that we didn't get or, um, you know, the challenges that they may have faced in post. I will say on the marketing side, um, the ringer piece that I mentioned earlier did reference that some of the, the floppiness, uh, can be, uh, attributed to the the kind of like muddled and not really deftly done marketing on the part of the studio no. uh, around this particular movie. And I experientially remember that because when I think of this film, I think of like a space movie. I think of like a, mm-hmm. a, a kind of like contact adjacent film. Um, and that's because the when I first encountered this film as a child like it was trailers for it where it made me think that it was a space movie it did not make me think that it was Mm -hmm. a horror film yeah that may be true because i i was too young when it came out i was like six or seven so i would this would not have even been remotely on my radar but i remember the first time i saw it i was talking about it to my dad afterwards and he's like yeah i saw that with your grandpa and your uncle and we freaking hated it and i think it might have been mismarketed (laughs) he's like it's not really like my dad likes horror, but more like the more like a hammer or a universal monster movies, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a Vincent Price kind of stuff or some of the supernatural horror every now and again. He doesn't really dig the like gory cosmic horror that you get in Event Horizon. And my my grandpa, absolutely. I have no idea how he sat through this because <laughs> he, he doesn't he doesn't do like anything yeah. this weird. And uh, neither really does my uncle. So <laughs> I guess I think it must really it really must have not been not been marketed towards the uh, the audience that was going to be receptive to it. And I think that's probably why it's become such a cult hit later is now mm-hmm. that people actually know like what it's like. It's 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 easier for it to find the people who actually will appreciate it 
mm-hmm. um, for what it is. Yes. Uh, I wonder too, if some of it's just that, and, and again, I was very young. I was born in 1991. So I, I, I was young in most of the nineties. And I also didn't really get super into horror until college, but I feel like it hasn't been like the idea of cosmic horror hasn't even really been in the average horror person's like lexicon and uh, like like average not not like the super super hardcore but like yeah. kind of average person for all that long maybe like a decade or 15 years and this yeah. was before that so i think if you had actually if this had come out now and people could talk about it as cosmic horror mm. i think that it would have found people who liked it a lot easier that's a really good point yeah. there was also a string of kind of similar sci-fi horror kind of films that were all coming out within about five years of each other. And I, I, I know this only because I had this, this reminiscence that I was relaying to Carly after we watched the movie where I'm like, there's another like sci-fi horror premise that isn't as good as Event Horizon. But when I was a kid, I got them all confused because I like saw them all on cable at the same time. One mm-hmm. of which is, is a, a 99 film called Virus that has Billy Baldwin, Donald Sutherland, and Jamie Lee Curtis in it. But that one just takes place like on like I an ocean I don't think I've ever even heard of that one before. Yeah, it's it's like a mix of like malicious alien entity and like Terminator robots, like on a <laughs> ship. You know, it's like it's like the thing meets, you know, elements of this. Um, and then there's another one that came out in 2000 that is called uh, Supernova that has uh, uh, James Spader uh, and... Uh, Robin Tunney. Robin that one Tunney, I do yeah. remember. I remember seeing the the uh, the DVD artwork for that, yes. like at yeah. Blockbuster. So why? Yeah, and and so I saw all these movies around the same time, you know, like on like cable, like HBO or like you know Showtime or something. Growing up, and I I, I conflated all of them. I got them all mixed up and mashed together mm-hmm. until I started to like define which ones were which. And I, I went back just yesterday and, and watched these trailers in anticipation of this episode and realized that part of the marketing thing is like there was also a very sort of like homogenized idea of what a movie trailer was and did. Mm. And, you know, it, it it's parodied now, but that like very kind of like low voiceover, the like in, in a, a world, world kind right, of, kind of world. character. Yeah. And, and all of these trailers have it. Um, they have, you know, a, a very specific kind of late 90s, early aughts, like rock techno kind of like beat and soundtrack to it, which, you know, to, to his... Uh, I'll lay the blame at Paul Anderson's feet here. Like he loves that kind of music. Like it's like the, the Mortal Kombat mm-hmm. theme and like the music in the credits here and, and all of that. But I mean, I'm going to say it's not that I don't like that music. It's that I don't feel like Prodigy is an appropriate credits music choice yeah, no. for the type of movie that Event Horizon is. No, totally. Like it, it's, it's very weird. That's that kind fair. of like UK, like sort of like electronic, like techno stuff that was happening. It, it doesn't feel right for this kind of movie oh, at man. all. Um, but but by any means, you know, what I mean is like the, the marketing is something that suffered, I think, because of the era. I don't think that we had figured out sort of like a language for trailers and trailers themselves did not have a, such like a widespread uh, like aptitude the way that they do today, where we can mm-hmm. like watch a trailer that's cut specifically for an audience and in a very deliberate way and then, you know, thrown on Twitter for millions of eyes to see over the course of the right. day. Right. And I feel like you just see so many more like before social media was widespread, like I basically the only time I saw trailers for movies was, was already in the theater for another mm-hmm. movie. Right. And that wasn't that long ago. Really? Yeah. yeah. 
as we like, you know, examine the films of the 1990s, it is very rare for us to find a trailer for one of these movies that feels like it could be shown to a modern audience and sell them on the movie. They all feel very of their time and very like pre-internet. You know, when I wonder too, I I don't, sorry, I don't know. I don't know about this. I wonder too, if they kept, because I, I keep seeing like reviews, like early reviews, like kind of comparing it to Alien. And I think that's an unfair comparison because they are two, other than being in space, they are two very different movies. Yeah. Yes. And it is very conceivable that someone who really, really likes Alien will not like Event Horizon or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. I happen to like both of them, but uh, I it, I know a lot of people who don't, who like only Alien or only Event Horizon. Yeah, I, I think that might be an uncon- unfair comparison too, especially because yes. Alien is so like vaunted. It's like, it's one of those like, <laughs> one of those movies when people will ask you like, what's the best horror movie of all time? Like if you, you post that on a Facebook horror fan group and you're going to get at least a handful of people saying it's Alien. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Totally. Yeah, it's like, the thing that's that I, I kind of love about Event Horizon is that it sits at the apex of, of sci-fi and horror, as we've mentioned before, in a way that is uh, for both communities, in a way that Alien is not, right? Mm-hmm. Alien is, yes, has horror elements and is, it, you know, it, when you break it down, essentially a slasher film in space. Uh, but but this movie operates on a, a fundamentally very different level in terms of like the supernatural elements of it and like the actual like gothic imagery and the way that it utilizes that to the point where science fiction people like it, but horror fans like it too. Um, I, you're right. I, I cannot say the same for Alien. I think that there's a lot of horror aficionados that just would not buy into Alien in the same way. Well, I, I feel like... Um... Just by virtue of Event Horizon being like, there's the the gore is much more extreme. It's it's very tense in a different way. It has all those gothic like flourishes that are not stock and standard for sci-fi. Like I know a lot of people who love Alien, but like will not watch like hardly any other horror. Like that's mm-hmm. like the one that they will watch. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like if you don't like horror at all you're not going to like Event Horizon. It's not going to be like the exception for you where Alien is one that like, yeah, that, that could be an exception for people. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. I think this is evidenced by the fact that we just had a conversation with uh, one of one of our good friends of the show, uh, Owen Morowitz, who was on our Stargate episode recently, who does not like horror movies very much by his own admission. And, uh, you know, dabbles ever so slightly and says that he's a big uh, sci-fi nerd. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the opposite, I think you, you said is true of you. Yeah, I don't like science fiction hardly at all. Yeah. Um, I handful of movies. I, I like Event Horizon. I like Alien. Um, I like Pandorum, actually. OK, but yeah, that was like, fun. That's about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And a uh, handful of books. Um, I like Dune. Uh, I like I, I, yeah. I read an Ursula K. Le Guin sci-fi, not one of her bigger ones. I liked that one, but yeah, it's Ursula oh, yeah. K. Le Guin, so she could write about anything. I wouldn't care. It would be good. Um, but yeah, so Event Horizon is much more for me because it is. It has some sci-fi trappings, but I do feel it feels it falls strong more strongly in the horror camp, and especially like the gothic elements of that because that's my bread and butter. That's my favorite shit. Yeah. Like I eat that up. <laughs> so if you if you throw me something that looks like a like a, a gnarly cathedral in space, I'm here for it. Like just just bring it. It looks like a gnarly cathedral. I don't care that it's in space. I know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, point being that Owen, I think, is also someone who loves Event Horizon. 
like it is the great mm-hmm. equalizer between these two. Like it is the meeting place. It is mm-hmm. the safe haven for the intersection of both of these yes. these fandoms. Um, and I, I think it's just really special in that regard. Like I think it transcends a lot of these other films that people, uh, you know, people compare it to. Like this is certainly a place where you can do like a, an RIYL type of of like you know conversation, but it's a, it's it's own thing it, it's very singular i think mm-hmm. in its approach and it's it's actual practice as well it, it, it's very different one of the other kind of production woes that that we haven't talked about yet is uh the the schedule that anderson was given to cut this movie in i think by his own admission he knows that there are just like these gaping holes in the logic of the movie and, and in the narrative largely because he was anticipating working with about 10 weeks of post after what was by all accounts a relatively seamless on-set production and only given four because Titanic was going over budget and, and past schedule. So they needed to fill a summer slot uh, and uh, and push Titanic back. Of course, that worked out for the studio. You know, Titanic wound up being the highest grossing film of all time at a certain point, winning 11 Oscars, et cetera, et cetera. But for the sake of this movie, kind of curbed it. <laughs> you know, it didn't, didn't give a lot to work you know- with. I never really liked Titanic, and now I just have another reason to not really like <laughs> Titanic. <laughs> yeah. Yes. James Cameron is the opposite of a good wife guy. Oh, He's my like, God. <laughs> like, from all accounts, like, he is just like... He's not a fan of his wives. No. Yeah. Catherine Bigelow's... Yeah. No. It's it's one of those. So, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm Team Anderson in, in this case as well, despite really enjoying Titanic, thinking it's a pretty cool movie. Um, but it, it's not event horizon well and i think like you know just to beat a dead horse here i'm realizing that the the lack of time that they were working with in post probably gave us some of the kind of like manic uh disjointed things that end up serving the vibes of the film better as we've Mm -hmm. been saying like initially when i when aaron and i were talking about the post schedule i was like that is so fucked like jesus i can't imagine like what what they would have had to do or get rid of to do 10 weeks worth of work in four including with test audiences Mm -hmm. which is a whole other thing right not not just have it done but have it done and screened for people and then recut you know like multiple versions and edits of this film being prepared within that time frame that sounds miserable yeah but you know it it does it still gave us something beautiful yeah definitely the more i hear about the the production woes the more it's like man that's that's a lot of happy accidents that happened here yeah absolutely really like with like you have expect to do 10 weeks of post but you got four weeks to do it we're losing cuts of um you know we're losing reels of film and romanian salt mines <laughs> like that should not make a movie that's even remotely decent yeah. much less like as like compelling as this movie is. totally yeah absolutely and it i think it brings me to like one of maybe my final points about the movie and the production at large which is just about paul ws anderson as a filmmaker he has been critically panned for his entire career. You know, I, I, to my knowledge, he has not made any films that have, you know, what would we would consider now in like the, you know, in the, in the post Rotten Tomatoes era as like a, a fresh film or, or something that like, you know, kind of breached past that 60% marker. But he continues to work and he makes money in most of his movies. And, you know, the thing that I, I actually find really enduring about him beyond his wife guy status in Hollywood is that he seems to be somebody who has been, who has avoided becoming embittered 
by the studio system and like the the sometimes oppressive nature of it. Mm. He seems like very generous mm-hmm. in the way that he works. And I think it's part of the reason why he's reevaluated by, you know, by our generation of people, you know, who grew up with his movies and were relatively young when they came out and now are in adulthood. Uh, you know, there, there were things that we saw in his movies that, that, you know, piqued our imagination and, and that we enjoyed and, and that we grew up with and kind of, you know, calcified and, and formed a lot of our, our movie watching sort of personas. And he just seems like a really like kind of generous and genuine spirit. You know, he's, he's often like thrown in with like that category of the term I hate, but like vulgar auteurists, right? People who have been reevaluated as like great filmmakers. But I, I think he just, he just finds a, a really fascinating balance between the demands of a studio and also preserving an integrity of his vision that a lot of filmmakers can't do or refuse to do. I mean, you can say whatever you want about Paul W.S. Anderson, but you watch a Paul W.S. Anderson movie and you know that's who made it. Mm-hmm. And yes. you can't say that about every director working today. Um, or or at probably, I'm historically, I'm sure there have been also plenty of times when, like, yeah, some directors, you know it's them, but there's a whole bunch of people just pumping out studio schlock that's basically interchangeable. And, you know, I, I've always a little bit more inclined. I'm like, I'd rather something fail in an interesting way than be like basically competent, but like kind of boring. Yes. We were having this exact conversation because we were talking about, you know, the sort of apparatus that has been built around these like up and coming, very talented filmmakers who get co-opted into like the Marvel machine, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and I don't want to make our show one where we constantly shit on like the MCU or like modern, like blockbuster cinema. It's just not our bag. We talked about the nineties. But it's interesting to like put the two up and juxtapose them where they refuse to let those filmmakers fail in interesting ways. They create Mm -hmm. a sort of system where everything is sort of predetermined, preset, you know, has mediated, mediated, has, has units around it to make sure that like it is focus grouped into something that feels the same, you know, 25, 30, a hundred times over instead of something that could be just like, an intense flop but a fascinating one we just we don't we don't get that from those kind of films you don't get you don't get them allowed to make cats (laughs) (laughs) yeah no they can't not i mean not with the budgets right and not with like the amount of money that they're putting into it yeah you and with that kind of that kind of system in place like you never get anything that's really like truly abysmal but you also never get anything that's you, you don't really have the chance to do anything that's really really truly interesting or unique um and you know, whether that be interesting and unique in a really, really good way or interesting and unique, like Cats is interesting and unique, <laughs> um, you don't get it. And, you know, sometimes, uh, I don't know, given the choice between I can watch a movie that's basically well made, it's it's fine. There's, there's nothing about it that's um, objectively poorly done. Right. Or like sitting in the theater, like kind of drunk watching cats and like feeling my soul leave my body when Judy Dench looks right at me and her like awful cat face and like telling me that cats aren't dogs. Like that's an experience I can't get in something that's focus grouped into oblivion. Yeah, absolutely. It's like you can tell when somebody is swinging for the fucking fences, right? And the thing about that, like, you know, to complete the metaphor is that 70% of the time they're going to miss or they're going to like, you know, ground out. Right. And every so often you're just going to get like a brilliant piece of cinema. And I think that this film like is executed in a way that is like all in going for it. 
it, it is one of those blank check movies that people should make more of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, I was again having a conversation recently with you know a, a friend of the show talking about uh, James Wan's Malignant. And you know, for like whatever failings, I've not seen it yet, okay. but I'm 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 very curious about it. I had a blast with it. <laughs> I've been hearing all from people whose tastes that I like generally tend to vibe with or agree with. I've been hearing from some of them like this movie rocks. It's awesome. It's like the dumbest, most fun thing you'll see. And also, this movie fucking sucks. It's miserable. I don't know yes. why you'd waste your time or money. And I'm yes. like, oh, I don't know where I'm gonna fall. <laughs> yeah. But that's the fun of it, I think. And like, <sighs> honestly, I think that's what's so refreshing and why people are gravitating towards it and why I enjoy it so much is like, this movie is for every one of its like 100 minutes, just completely preposterous. And it only escalates as it goes on. It just, it, the climax of the movie is, it, 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 I, I transcend, my soul leaves my body in the last like 30 minutes of that movie. And I, I was telling, you know, this, this friend and he was saying the same. It's like, that's what you fucking do with Aquaman money. You know what I mean? Like that is what you're supposed to do mm-hmm. after Mortal Kombat, right? Is like take that blank check and make something that is just knowing that you're probably not going to get another chance like this. You know, you have carte blanche, you have the money, you have the studio backing and their support. Go out and make something like an Event Horizon. Yes. It just makes me love this movie so much more thinking about it that way. For sure. You know, and I said like at the beginning um, that kind of my my main reason I wanted to talk about Event Horizon was because I have this instinctual, like, I like it, but I still feel like it's like not its ideal form. And the more I'm talking about it, the more I'm realizing maybe it actually is its ideal form and maybe I just love it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think our conversation has convinced me as such. Yeah. There's there's no other iteration of this movie that I think would would be superior to it. It is it is perfect in its in its imperfection. Yes. <laughs> I absolutely agree. And I think too that like just to close on your point about Paul W.S. Anderson, that his generosity, as you say, um, facing the the business of making movies, right? Which we as a movie going audience never see. We don't ever see or think about the things that are impacting and interacting with a director's vision or their ability to tell a story a certain way. And I think the fact that we know of all these production woes and how much bullshit, you know, he had to deal with, not just on the timing side of things, but on the marketing support that he was getting and, and all of that, that business of movie making stuff that we know all of that and that we are still so certain of his talents and this movie's quality. I think that just like says it all, right? Like if, if even in spite of that, um, we're able to understand that this man is capable of, of having a vision that's arresting and different and compelling and leaves a mark on it, on you that, that, that to me signals that, you know, there are probably a lot of creators that we, may not be giving a chance um, because they might be, they might be constrained by, you know, the capitalist impulses of the system and not necessarily able to tell the story they want to tell. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me appreciate Anderson that much more. It makes me appreciate Event Horizon that much more after already loving it and having it be an enduring part of like my, my lexicon of, of 
movies that I go back to all the time for a sense of familiarity, but also, you know, to, to scare me a little bit. You know, I came in and I'm like, this is like a six out of 10 movie. This should be dumber or it should be smarter. But now, now having this conversation, I'm like, no, actually, this is like, this is maybe a 10 out of 10 movie, despite all of its uh, mission accomplished. Yeah. That's all we ever want out of these conversations, Maddie. That makes me so happy. And I don't think that we even started no. this conversation with it being, I think, maybe above like a six or a seven out of 10. Not either, me. But Not me, man. No, such an immense appreciation for it now after having this conversation. Um, and you're so right. Like I, I have seen this movie multiple times on this occasion. Like I was going into it, anticipating, you know, b- because you had also like, you know, kind of mentioned this in like a tweet that it, you know, it should be a, a few notches dumber, a few notches smarter to like really hit. And even while watching it, I was like thinking to myself, like I can't believe how many of these scenes are still like unsettling me and making me jump. Like this movie still like has a a, a handle on me and like. Uh, is is able to like work me over in a way that a lot of movies that I'm familiar with can't anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's rare for me that I watch a, a horror movie and find it even close to as tense or as scary the second time. Every so often I'll get one. And I was pleasantly surprised that this was one of them. Yes. Um, I think we'll leave it at that for, for this episode. Um, Maddie Lewis, thank you so much for joining us and talking about Event Horizon today. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to really evaluate this movie. And I I feel like I understand and appreciate it so much more than I already did just chatting with you guys about it. Us too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Where can people find you, Maddie? Um, So on Twitter, you can find me at Devil's Doorbell, all one word, underscore at the end. Uh, I also have a Gumroad store that has two things you can pick up right now on there. They're pay what you want. And I am one of three hosts on, uh, as you guys mentioned in the little intro you did, uh, a podcast called The Pod Hand. It's a new podcast. We are uh, we just are doing a uh, complete reread of Berserk, uh, as well as talking about other um, works of fiction that may have influenced Berserk or been influenced by it, or just works that are kind of in a similar thematic or aesthetic vein. Awesome. We'll make sure to link uh, to all of that so you all can check it out. Yeah, please do check out Maddie's writing and uh, The Pod Hand. As someone who uh, has never read a lick of of Mira's work, um, I, I've still managed to listen to a little bit of this, and it's only compelled me to like hunt it down immediately and to like start getting into into it and, and really uh, dive in. It's a thing I've long wanted to. And now after hearing you all uh, talk about it on the show. I actually just started reading it in April because um, my other my other co-host Kay made it like a Twitter thread about how great it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd always kind of avoided it until then because it has this this reputation, let's say. And uh-huh. um, it's another case of mismarketing, man, because it is uh, it is. <laughs> It is extreme and it is it is violent, but it's also just like it's very humane. There's a lot of philosophical depth to it. Just great. It's like mm. Shakespeare, and I'm I'm not being facetious there. Like I'm like that is a literal comparison to me. I love that. Um, yeah, it's so it's been a lot of fun going through that and and talking about it. And I I would encourage you to check it out. It's it's really cool. <laughs> on my list of things to do with all the other 
hundreds of things to read and watch that I get from all of our all of our wonderful guests on this show. But it's it's certainly close to the top. It sucks having friends with good taste because they will always recommend <laughs> you way more stuff that you will like that you could possibly ever actually keep up. Yes. With. Yes, absolutely. It's a good um, problem to have, but that, it's also so antagonizing. No, I know. We need more free time to do it with. Uh, which you can help with if you would like to by following us at Hit Factory Pod or subscribing to us on Patreon at patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. Uh, shout out to our capitalist overlord. Her name is Linda. Uh, Maddie Lewis, thank you again one more time, and we will catch you all next time. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>